Ron Ash. I'm Ron Ash, your host. We are the Being Television Radio Network, live and local, national, and international on great stations worldwide. For a complete list of our affiliates and showtimes, visit us online at beingwithronash.com. That's beingwithronash.com. And today you are being with Ron Ash and Ann Kate Sullivan, an award-winning and best-selling author focusing on mythology and folklore for the modern age. Welcome, Ann Kate Sullivan. Thank you for having me on the show. You're very welcome, young lady. We had a little interesting um, interaction before the show. We started discussing uh, our own beginnings as far as uh, personal awakenings uh, had gone. And uh, um, we actually got back to the Catholic Church, believe it or not, because I was brought up Catholic and uh you know, my awakening began with seeing a lot of numbers, got a little bit into um, that mysterious book that uh, we read uh, very little of as a child growing up in the Catholic Church, but we had our little scriptures here and there, went into that by the numbers, and I started picking out metaphysical scripture, which I really didn't even know what metaphysical was. I didn't know what law of attraction uh, was. Eventually that was revealed to me, but I was just astounded by the power that was inside these uh, laws that I just happened to pick up in that particular ancient writing. And uh, today we're going to talk a lot about uh, Celtic goddesses and heroines as well. And you were telling me that you started off with the Mary Magdalene connection. Well, yes, I, I'll take it back even, even when I was young. My, my grandmother was a Sunday school teacher, so we, we, I guess we both had that biblical connection. And uh-huh. I, was always, I was always really curious. But what happened to me was that I, I was starting to struggle with the fact that I really couldn't find uh-huh. the feminine in the church. So I was struggling with that a lot. And uh-huh. um, so I wound up in England and heard about this place. I don't know if you know it. It's called the Chalice Well in England. In no, I'm not familiar with that. No. Yes. Yeah. Have you been? No, not at all. Well, it's a, it's a really it's an interesting place because um, supposedly Joseph of Arimathea came with the the Grail or the Chalice in 1 uh-huh. A.D. to Glastonbury in Somerset. And, of course, there's all kind of speculation about what that grail was. Was it a cup? Was it the cup that held the blood of Christ? Was it, was it the Magdalene herself? Was it the child? In some cases, it's the child of Jesus and the Magdalene of heretics, you know, okay. <laughs> um, believe that he brought Sarah. So, anyway, so when you go to Glastonbury, there's this big melting pot with all sorts of people talking about spiritual things, and they get much wilder from them on mm-hmm. um but what but what i started to i just became fascinated by the grail and what the grail mm-hmm. was and 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 this tradition in the british isles of going to these wells and peering into the wells and asking for the for the grail maiden and finding feminine essence and going you know a heroine mm-hmm. quest ah, this is subtle, this is almost lost, this is something that I have to listen deeply for. So that started me you know, off. I, I remember a, a 
program I watched about the Grail at one time, and they were looking at the Last Supper. And then they were mm. saying one of the apostles at the Last Supper was actually Mary. And mm-hmm. the challenge was that distance. Do you remember that? I no, do. Really, yeah. Absolutely. So, and I think Dan Brown <laughs> Dan Brown really went for that one too, right? So uh-huh. who knows? I, I did start looking at Mary Magdalene and you know, f- certainly she was not a whore. It seems like in a lot of the traditions that um especially if you go back to some of the old texts, um, she was uh-huh. meant to be the church. She was actually um an, an enlightened being that you know, help, was uh, the counterpart of the Christ, and and so I don't know for certain what she is, but but the quest itself, the quest that it opened up, was really interesting, and it did not take me as I thought it would, maybe towards France and the caves, the Magdalene caves. I did go, but the quest really started taking me west towards uh, the the Welsh goddesses. Um, Aaron Rood and Blue Dye with, and then to, to some even more ancient ones. So, so the Grail Quest took me into the Celtic world. So, the, so way. So if we go back to the the story of say the Kaliach, that's a ten thousand year old story. <laughs> and you know what's fun? Have you ever heard of this? The Kaliach, like the old woman of the world. Have you ever heard of this no. character? I, you know, the, when I f- first started researching them, they, they, I think they had almost died out. I mean, you know, until I think it was 1917 after the Easter Rebellion, if people, if people were told these Gaelic stories or uh, in, in Ireland, you could be killed for it. Uh, and so, I was given when, when I was given my overseas research award, they said I didn't even know what I was getting into. They just said go over there and collect folklore, you know. And and so I was um, working with. Um, that I was studying Lady Gregory, who who so in early 1900s had become the the patron of W. B. Yeats, who's a very famous poet, very famous mystic poet, W. B. Yeats. And so I I found myself in these landscapes along Galway and so forth, Sligo, where where I was starting to understand why sitting by one of these lakes or one of these turlas that you might start opening up to mystical awareness because it's there in those places. So so the Grail Quest for me really became a, a collection, uh, you could say a collection of female archetypes, you know, Magdalene being the awakened one, the um, the Kaliak, the old woman of the world being the wise one, the Anya being the brilliant one, and so forth. Where do you think we went off course and it became like uh, women were second-class citizens rather than equals. Because even when you look back, let's say back into the uh, Bible again, and you look at Genesis, and it was, we created them in our image, men and women. You know, where did it all get off course? I, I'm really confused by that. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. I think it's a really Something brilliant happened. question. It's a really yeah. brilliant question. And and I'll answer it a couple different ways. Um one, I, I ran into the several years ago. I ran into these three very small Mayan priests, who who said to me, "Do you know that the that the stories of the feminine, the energy of the feminine, has not been allowed to be on the planet in 5,125 years? Mm-hmm. You need to tell the stories of the women before that." And mm-hmm. and I kind of was, I almost dismissed them. And my husband grabbed them, and he he said. 
these people dream. They're, they're, they're wise. Listen to them. And so I went back and I talked to them again. And as they spoke, I went, you know, that might, there might be something to that. You know, so 2012, finally this feminine energy gets to return. Because if you, in my first book, Legends of the Grail Stories of Celtic Goddesses, that's the time period I go to to find the really empowered feminine. And so, you know, what, ha- what happens to the feminine? I mean, if, in, in that book, too, I give a 33,000-year herstory instead of a history, herstory. Mm-hmm. So some of it's intuitive because you can only go back so far without guessing, some certain amount of guesswork. But it looks like there was a matriarchal culture at one point. And um, I started focusing on Ireland um, specifically because that's, that's where you can find a lot of these stories. And bless St. Patrick because his monks wrote a lot of the stories down, and that's why we have them. But, um, you know, it, it, if we go back to the time of the Tuatha de Dinan, so that's, 1700 BC and before. These are the time. This is the time the children of Danu. They're called, and they're known as the wise, beautiful ones. The, and and these stories are still told all through Ireland. It's it's really considered part of the history there. And if you have Irish blood, which I think nine million people do in the United States, you might have a, a touch of the Tuatha, the, the the fairy folk, in you too. So they they were they were sort of. Um, we would know them as Merlin or Merlin's counterpart, Nimue, or, you know, so the magical wizards and so forth. So, so these, these beings treated women and men completely equally. And uh-huh. they knew, and, and you, you might actually like this, um, they knew that if a man, was, a man was going to rule as a hero or a king or a leader, it was the woman, it was the goddess of the land that had to grant him that right. She had to say, yes, you have what it takes. And okay. in doing so, it, and, and there's something delicious in doing so, because in doing so, there are checks and balances, because the men are also, you know, they're going back to the feminine and saying, you know, does your magic really work? You know, are you really, are you really working in alignment with life? And then there's, and then the, the masculine is meant to sort of protect the the creation. So in this particular case, you create life, you create balance in nature, balanced wind, balanced fire, balanced water, balanced earth. And when that goes out of balance in that tradition, when you go out of balance, this is sort of pre-Celtic tradition, you create what a wasteland. Everything goes nuts. There's a, fires and earthquakes and floods and nuts because the male and female energies are out of balance. And, of course, we all have male and female energies inside of each one of us, so it's not necessarily gender, but it's about finding balance. And so I was so touched to go to some of these places. And you have to, I mean, there is such thing as like ontological shock where you're there and you go, wait a second, I was raised Christian and this is, this is weird, you know. But when you're standing in those places and you're looking at these old cairns and you, you, know, you crawl in some of them and they have like three-leaf clovers inside and you, and you go inside and you go, you know, these were probably healing temples, these, you know, sort of in, you know, European indigenous healing temples, and they probably knew some stuff that we've forgotten, you know? Yeah, so, some stuff might have been put away. You know, they felt like it was in conflict with the uh, preferred teachings of the, the leadership of the times and 
Uh-huh. Really, a lot of times that that fear factor in there, so they kind of you know push these things away. Well, the 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 book, this Legends of the Girls uh, Stories of Celtic Goddesses, starts actually with your question, which was very intuitive, because it starts with Danu saying, "It is now time for for my daughters and myself to go underground. The Milesians uh-huh. are coming." And so there was a there were a series of invasions that happened at that point, and so these more gentle cultures that were very in tune with nature and could read the trees and could sing with the stars and all, they really literally decided to go underground. So now they're called the people of the she, and uh-huh. um, so they're, un- they're underground. And I think that the, the sort of the more magical ones, also this is also in the second book, The Heroines of Avalon, they also realized that they had to become misty They had because they were being, at this point, there's a persecution that's starting and, um, you know, I was raised Christian, but, you know, there were some atrocities done in the name of, you know, all religions, oh, yeah. done some atro- you know, so, yeah. you know, so those things happened. And a lot of the old, you know, goddess temples and places of worship now have churches on top of them, which is great okay. in a way because it means that they've been protected and the wells uh-huh. and springs are protected. And it means that we can go back there and look again and go, Wait a second. Where was the feminine cutout? Can I speak to the Grail Maiden presence that's here? Can I awaken this archetype that's within me and around me that so wants to come forward now? Because hey, it's time. It's awakening time. You know, it's time for the feminine to be fully fledged once again, and for this earth to blossom into the golden age. You know. You know, it's really beyond that time. I actually made a statement the <laughs> other day, and earnestly I said that. Uh, as a man, I can say this, that men have failed us. We have been unable to, we've been unable to, you know, change the vibe that exists in, in the governments of the world. Um, I really would like to see two women on a democratic ticket running for president, uh, just to kind of bring that all out, out again and have that empathy and that compassion and and that logic too as well to realize hey this is what we're dealing with here this is what's at stake you know and that also that love and protection of uh, of a mother you know I'm not saying that it's not there for a father as well but as you said and I could just imagine the interview when you know somebody was being indoctrinated into the uh, leadership back in the day and what they looked at and I'm sure one of the biggest things was uh, empathy and the other was compassion before that male was allowed to to rule well and it would be it's interesting because in the in the celtic tradition what the what the woman would do for the for them so so i'll tell you a story the, so there was a man named kahulan of merhevna and by the way i love what you said i do think it's time for women to really step forward and it, it's just it's going to happen it's just time but in the, so, but to take it way back, and I think these stories, the reason they're told generation after generation is because they still have relevance, you know, and that's why people love them. But there was a man once upon a time named Cahulin of Merhevna. He's a very famous Irish hero. He's one of the very f- most of the famous, most famous in Ireland. He's kind of like Achilles in, in the Greco-Roman t- tradition. So Cahulin wanted to become a hero. But he also was completely in love with this woman, Emer. And, you know, as we were saying, in the Celtic tradition, the woman has to, has to choose the man. She has to say, yes, you're the one that can be this. 
Like, so he goes to her and he talks to her. And the thing is this, he's not really ready yet. So what does he have to do? He has to get on a crew. He has to get on this boat. And he has to set sail to Scotland to meet the sorceress, Skyach. Because the sorceress, Skyach, has ma- the magic. And you, you can't really be a hero unless you have your magic, you know. So, so he gets there, and, and you have to jump across this 22-foot ravine, and there's skulls all at the bottom of it, you know. So, but, but so he's looking at these skulls, and then he, but he goes ahead, and he makes the leap, and he makes it. And there's Skaya, and she's standing there. She doesn't have much on. You know, she's kind of reading him. She's like, am I going to make love with him? Am I going to kill him? Am I going to turn him into a hero? What am I going to do? What's, what's his unfolding? And she goes, ah, oh, he's a hero. So she puts her dagger away, and she takes off running in the forest, and he follows her. So she, so she puts him through all these initiations. He has to learn how to handle a lightning bolt without dying. You know, he has to learn how to, how to work with all of the elements. And so together, so really it's this dance of togetherness. You know, I think maybe on the, on the next ticket we need a man and a woman dancing together, you know, because... Because we need different qualities. We actually need the cohesion of the masculine feminine. And so eventually Cahulian comes back and he marries Emer and he does become one of the greatest of all heroes. And, of course, where it goes wrong, you see more as you get closer to Arthurian legend. So it's the century to 12th century, and you find the stories of, say, Balin, who, who creates the Fisher King, the Wounded King. And, and he does it because he doesn't know how to use his sword correctly, which you know, has a lot of – the Lady of the Lake is saying, don't use your sword yet. You're not trained yet. You don't use your sword to dominate. Your sword is to be used for truth. Do you understand what truth is? And, of course, he doesn't. He's just blindly flailing with his sword, and he wounds the king, and the, the world becomes a wasteland. So, so, again, we see when things go out of balance, when people use their powers incorrectly – we create what? What we've done right now. We've just created a big mess. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so yes, there's a lot to do. So, what are ancient heroines and goddesses? Uh, why are they important to us right now? What well, I think we need... So, I, you know, I think one thing is that, we, you know, you, we read a lot of news. And I, I was thinking today maybe I, w- I want to read less news. But, you know, we see, oh, tornadoes and yeah. politicians. And, you know, we just see all this stuff. And then so it can make us feel inadequate, helpless, you know, like there's no hope. And so I think what, what happens when we go back in time and I think actually there was something that really like literally happened. I think that I don't know who did it necessarily, but I think we were systematically disconnected from our roots. And when you're disconnected from your roots, you're disempowered. You can't do anything. You don't you lost your you've lost your magic. So one thing that happens when you go back and people love Stonehenge, they love Newgrange and there are lots of other great stone circles and even in, you know, here in the United States, Mount Shasta and all kinds of places where you can go back and you can you really begin to find your roots again. And your roots being not, not only your sort of cosmic tale and your connection to the planet, but also, also you know, your ancestors. I mean, you're only here because your ancestors loved you, you know, enough to bring you here. And so when, when we start to root and then we can start to connect to these superhero ones and 
And, and these are ancient, ancient archetypes. We think, oh, this is imagination. But Merlin's what? He's like 10,000. His story's been told for over you know, 10,000 years. He's much older than we are. So it's a big energy that we start to tap into. And so when we start to tap into that hero, hero or heroine energy, then, then we start to awaken to our innate gifts. And then we become people who can actually start co-creating and start helping with the seas and the air and the trees. And, you know, so we can, we actually, you know, our inner Merlin starts to wake up and it's like, no, we're not disempowered. We're not helpless. Anything, anything but, you know, we can turn this around in a minute. But we do, in a way. You have to say, yeah, we've got to find our superpowers. But it's not, it's not make-believe. We each have this uh-huh. spark. You know, we each have this peace. We just have to remember it. So, I mean, a lot of monks and monasteries throughout the world uh, work on just what you're saying. They, they use that uh, knowledge of how the universe works through uh, prayer and meditation to uh, change the world for the better. And a lot of it is things that we talk about a lot on the show and, and uh, in our writings as far as, you know, seeing it in your mind, feeling it in your heart, and just kind of, you know, working on becoming the creator of your environment, of your experience. And I think it's really great when, you, when you're at that point and you have it all figured out and you begin to affect the people around you, and then those people pick up on it and they begin to act a little differently and they affect the world, the people around them as well. So it really is like a domino effect. It really is. I, I think, you know, when you go on your, on, on your quest or your pilgrimage or however you, you tap into your, the greater intelligence, you know, when you get to that moment, when you've, when you've tasted this, I call it like essential joy, uh, you know, when you, when you start to understand, oh my goodness, you know, this, this, peace that that's true about me this the the truth is is that i'm very happy that i'm very creative that i'm you know and i think it's essentially true for all human beings and then you start to wonder about the suffering and the pain and you go oh my goodness that's a cloak that could really just fall off this that part is the illusion and and once you get a little taste of that nectar you know it's like these flowers keep opening up and and then you're on a, an amazing adventure you know you just have to you can't stop at that point you just got to keep awakening and i and i do think people are awakening all over the planet now i mean it's happening in little places here 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 there it's like popcorn you know people are just <gasps> waking up and that's the great hope for the planet so in ancient ireland and in current ireland as well amongst the spiritual people what do they do to really connect with their roots and you know use these energies to create is it something different than we do here in the states or that oh, they I do see. in asia right uh there's so much to that question i mean first of all there a lot of people feel that there was an irish root race just as there was one in africa and probably in asia that there was a a, a race of people who you know, the people of the Merline. So, and that's, mm-hmm. that's still being tested. There are a lot of people at Oxford studying DNA to see if this is true. Brian Sykes is somebody that's working on it. So there are a lot of scholars working on that right now. That might or might not be true, but it's very interesting. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, there's, I think what happens, what can happen to a nation such as Ireland 
is that people can be disempowered by just spending a lot of time at the pub or on their cell phone or something. So that, that's a way that you yeah. do not empower yourself, right? Yeah, but one way that, Yeah, but one way um, you do empower yourself is to go into nature. And there's, in Ireland, there's so many different power spots that you can go to. The most recent one that I did, I go twice a year. I go to Oxford twice a year. I study with John and Kathleen Matthews. And um, Kathleen, is a, uh, she does Celtic shamanism, which is really brilliant. And John does, uh, he's written 200 books on Arthurian uh, legend. So he's England's expert on King Arthur. So they're both really fascinating. And the, so the last quest I went on was actually following Tolkien's path from Oxford through, through uh, the west of England into Wales and all through. So when, um, and I don't know if this is a common thing that people do. I mean, people commonly do something like go to Stonehenge or they go to, well, you know, different, different sacred sites. They go to the Tor, they go to Chalice Well, they go to different churches or, la- you know, labyrinths and so forth. There are lots of ways to start to tap in. But one of the ways and, and that I've been most fascinated by, and that is what my books are about really, is, is taking this heroine's quest, where you're starting to very intuitively follow a path that leads to your ancestral roots. I, I was, my father was in the lineage of the Llewellyns, the, um, which is the royal line in Wales. And so I started following the line of the Llewellyns and just going to these different castles and and then going to the through the through the woods and and just allowing allowing the the deities that reside there to kind of reveal the next step. So what you're really doing is you're developing your clairvoyance, your clairaudience, your clairsentience. You're starting to to receive the mysteries that were really almost completely lost that are bubbling up out of the springs and and, and wells now. I mean, you can really see it if you go to Stonehenge. I mean, right now. If you go, it's like a museum. There's hundreds of people there every day. And when I first started doing this 35 years ago, I could go. Well, once upon a time, it was empty. You know, you could sit there and have a picnic or whatever, but now you can't get close. You can't get close. It's changed a lot. It has really changed a lot. So, there, But there are other places you can go where you can still touch the stones, where you can still feel the vibration. You know, there are some people who say that, that the, con- the you know, consciousness was left from the old people, the druids or so forth, and this, in these stones, and that, you know, you can go and you can, you know, it helps with your awakening. But for sure, the scientists are showing that when you're in the sacred sites, that it awakens the, the Taurus. So it's awakening your energy field, and it's, supporting your consciousness and supporting your awakening. So it's fun. It's really fun. So do you think that's what that, uh, they say there's various vortexes uh, around the world. Do you think that's like one of the vortexes? Oh, definitely. I mean, they, there's a great book called The Sun and the Serpent. Um, and so they're actually in Glastonbury, there's a, there's a zodiac that's built into the landscape. And so you can go to each part of the zodiac, like the chalice wall is on the dove, so it's the Aquarian age. And you can go to each of these places and feel the landscape and feel how the landscape speaks, you know. So that's really fun, and it's quite well known. There's also one in, near London called the Kingstonbury Zodiac. Um, and you can um, – but when you go – you know, it, 
it requires this kind of bardic mythic imagination because you can go to these places and you walk over and go, oh, it's Stonehenge. Okay, these uh-huh. weird guys drag stones over and whatever. <laughs> or you can go to these places, right, and you can and you can start to enter like your your mythic imagination, and that's when it gets to be interesting because you're standing on these places. The Druids, well, these are actually places that were built even before the Druids, but say the Tuatha de Dina knew where these these places were, these these vortexes, and so they would put stones there, and the stones were supposedly acted as like um, acupuncture needles, you know. So we would we would go to have acupuncture, you know, so to to enliven us, and so these old stones were to really enliven the land, and. Yeah. Um, so you go there, and if you're, you know, you're, you're kind of on, and then you get to this sacred site, and you enter. You consciously choose to enter. It's like, okay, you're humble, you're respectful, you're curious, you're open. You're like, you have to be like a kid. You don't have to be like a kid. Okay, let's, let's be the fool here, and let's just go and see what happens. Then, then there might be doors, to, you know, to the other world. You might experience so contact with other beings and so forth but you have to be able to open up and go oh look it's a bird oh and that bird's singing to me and it has a message and oh look there's a oak tree and there's a door inside of it and i'm going to go with my mythic imagination into this other world and maybe i'll i'll meet somebody wonderful you know so so that's <laughs> that's in in my books i give lots of practices and examples of how you can do that you know how you can step by step you know, I, I, open up I, I, I've documented many instances in my uh, own books of things like that that have happened to me. And I kind of moved away from documenting, too. I probably should get back into uh, journaling these things because many people have said that have read my books. You know, I've never seen anybody document so many uh, miracles that have happened in their lives before as you have. And at one point, I don't know what it was, but I just kind of like stopped doing that. And it's funny that we're on the radio today and it's coming up because the night before last during that dream state I was actually being led around at some sort of a party by an angelic being and they and they led me around it wasn't by the hand it was like by my forearm (laughs) and I just kind of you know moved along and it was just I I was speaking to my wife about it the next day and it was Mm. that same thing as I began to mention what had happened goosebumps Air standing up on edge on my arms and everything you know you just feel the energy of of the whole thing and it's almost like an affirmation that yes this was really an angelic experience that took place with this being and and he was just comforting me and letting me know that things are moving forward in a direction that's going to be very good for you oh that is lovely i'm i absolutely completely believe in miracles we have to be open to them I love the angelic presences, and I think they're really vouching for us. You know, they really want us. So maybe, who knows how that's going to unfold. That's exciting. Yeah, I, I, I think it was something, it was just, uh, it was time for me to be comforted. And we're, we're all needing to be comforted mm. at different yeah. times in our lives. And this was like, hey, I got to go talk to this guy, Ron Ash. And let him know. <laughs> Don't worry. Things are moving it's along. Be okay. The way they're supposed to move along is going to be okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. There's a lot going on on the planet right now. There's a lot, you know, and so people people can get very, you know, there's, I mean, you know, you can experience everything in, in, this, in this world, in this world of duality. 
And so I, I, that's why I feel like it's really important to know stories, and whether they're biblical mm-hmm. or whether they're Celtic or whether, what, you know, whether you go into the Ramayana or the Labragabala, they're beautiful stories that go back through time. And the reason they're still alive is because they help, they've helped every generation. And that's why they're retold for each generation. It's, it's so when we encounter something that's really difficult, we know how to walk through it. And, and I think yeah. that's really the value of the bard, you know. Mm-hmm. A true bard was supposed to know 250 stories of their people. And, wow. if, and if they knew, yeah, 250 stories. stories. And if you knew that, then you could train as a seer. And that's interesting because mm-hmm. it's like you already have your your kind of your morals in place. You already know your compass, and then you can see from a place of clarity. And then after 20 years of that, you might be able to become a druid, which is very mm-hmm. beautiful. You know, they were really the druids were the were the spiritual people of that area. And I mean, you know, one of the things you can do now, you ask what, what you can do now is you can join the bards, ovates, and druids. You know, and and they're bringing this is the sort of Oxbridge group that has started bringing the sort of new neo-Druid tradition alive. And people go, oh, weren't they, didn't they do human sacrifice? Not really, no, but that's what Caesar had to say about them in order to kill them. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to be demonized. Yeah. But yeah. they were actually very beautiful, and they were much more like Brahmin priests. You know, they were they mm-hmm. were the ones that were the, they they knew the lore of the trees. They really understood the land. They understood the elements. You know, so they were very beautiful beings. And if you think of their training, you know, this this uh, this twenty years of training that you that you would need to go through, they um, they actually yeah they had something. Okay, I'm here with Anne Kate Sullivan, uh, author of Hero. Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales, and Legends of the Grail, Stories of Celtic Goddesses. By all means, get online, uh, take a look at these books, and uh, if you have the opportunity, um, by all means, uh, order them up, uh, read their uh, summaries, do what you have to do. But it sounds like interesting stuff, Anne. You also uh, talk about the uh, Celtic eight-wheel calendar and... and, how important is that in today's world? Well, the I mean, the reason to go buy the books is is because there's a lot of information there. To if you if you're interested in let's let's face it, we live in a a wasteland right now, you know. And and if we if what we want to do is we want to move back into harmony and balance with the earth, and so, what we can, we can look to the future to technology. I actually do agree with that, but we also need to look to the past. How how we work in a harmonious way, how we can, you know, I mean, there's some obvious things that we're all talking about, but the eight-wheel calendar is lovely, and we all work with it in, in a way because we all know the solstices and we all know the equinoxes. We not know, might not know why they're in place the way they are, but we know that we, we know, and, and so in the old Celtic tradition, in, in the, the summer, the everything that was masculine that was out in the world that was positive and brilliant the sun was celebrated and at the winter solstice it was dark and you went inside the caves and it was and it was you know it was a, a time to to notice the seeds and how the world is dreaming and so that's the time that the feminine was celebrated and at the equinoxes it, there was the dance between the masculine and the feminine the fertility dances and then on the on the uh, it, at uh, harvest time 
It was the time to celebrate what had come through in the summer, with you know the life that had come, and and also what was passing away. So, um, and then there's cross quarter days too that that were celebrated, and, and and all of those are in my book. You can read them, you can sort of play with them, see see what works for you. But you know, one thing that just does work is if you just take your shoes off and go and put your feet in the grass. Just take yeah. some deep breaths, you know, just feel the earth. It's okay to feel your body. It's okay to feel your earth. It's okay to be feminine. It's okay to be masculine. But just wherever you are in this place and time is perfect. It's completely perfect. You are perfect in this moment. And But to get that, to get that sparkle, to know, gosh, you know, I could be anywhere, but no, I'm right here. I'm right here in this moment, and there's a reason for me to be here. And let's just fully show up, fully show up right now. <laughs> are, are there exercises, meditations, or practices in your book that help us connect to specific deities? Yes, there are. There, um, each so each section has it. The the myth is it was originally given. So those are very well researched. Then I went to each sacred site where these deities re- reside, and I tell their their story in first person. So it was a way of knowing the deity and feeling the land and, and being receptive to the story that wanted to be told. And then after that, yes, there, there, there's a way to connect to a tree, to a blessing, um, to, to do a visualization, to connect to the deity. And then there are some other gifts in each section as well so that you can really learn your true nature. So there are lots of exercises and so forth to be able to connect in. And it's, um, you know, I did it through King's College London. It was, I'm like a hybrid, so I'm, I'm really well trained um, in the academic world. So, and I really tried to keep that integrity. But then I went into the, the world that, that's emerging, you know, the feminine, the feminine world of intuition and dreams and all these things that were repressed that we need, you know, without our dreams, without the earth, we, we go into despair. You know, if you're, if you're unhappy or you're feeling despair, listen to your dreams. You know, that's what the Mayans do. They, they dream at night and they go, oh, yes, you know, and then they share their dreams with each other. Dreams are important. And this world is very animated. And, you know, the body is a great thing. So that's, I think that's part of what when we, when we do something like the eight-wheel calendar, we're allowing ourselves to move back in rhythm and harmony with the earth, with the sky, with the air, with the water. And then, we, and then you know, just in doing that, you tend to become more conscious. And you just, you know, maybe you won't get that plastic bottle of water, you know, or you just will think about what you're purchasing and what you're throwing away. And you'll just might think, you know, just, you just start to become a little more conscious about, you know, every, how every – footstep that you take on this earth every footstep ha- has an impact every thought has an impact you know and so if we can shift towards like stepping beautifully being kind to each other you know thinking about the words that we're putting into the world you know the words are like we our words are like magic you know they're they're spells you know yeah and our actions are very powerful as well it's so easy Absolutely. to have a positive attitude throughout your walk and uh, really lifts people's spirits and, and it's contagious it is it is contagious and it's so important and you know I think it's really important you know when, we, when we're when we talking about religion, religion and spirituality too for 
I mean, that was one thing I really struggled with, working with 33,000 years of material. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. you can see the beautiful things that we've done and then the really ugly things we've done to each other. Yeah. And I think, I think it's very important to be respectful of, you know, wherever anybody is in their awakening process. And if people, you know, need a certain religious structure, fantastic. If they don't want a religious structure, fantastic. But, but just, you know, that, that awakening spiral, this kindness, this love, this compassion, this is what's important. And um, if we can, you know, reach out and hold each other's hands, then we'll thrive. We'll get through all this. So you said a little while ago that the world is uh, animated. What do you mean by that? Well, um, what I mean by that, and, it, and it's funny, I've, I've said this to, to a variety of people who, who were sort of, you know, our, our society tends to think of everything as dead. We've been in this, this um, materialistic um, scientific culture for a while, which I think we're coming out of. And in, in the old Celtic tradition... Oh, we're definitely coming out of it. The millennials have kind of cast that aside. I, I noticed that uh, they're more geared towards experiences rather than, you know, things. The thing thing is kind of going away. And I've seen the transition in the, uh, I would say, the uh, late 70s, early 80s, where we became more concerned with uh, what we had as far as our identification rather than who we were and, and what we did. Mhm. Yeah, so things are and I think well we we needed a period of time and and I think this is where the Christo the Christos the Christ consciousness is really important. We needed a period of time where we really started to understand who we were as individuals mm-hmm. and and got really clear about that. What's the ego? What's the essential self? What's you know just so a lot of us have been doing that work for a long time. So now we are more identified with our true nature, which we ex- we have to experience. Someone can tell you it doesn't matter. You know, it might awaken something in you, but unless you experience it inside yourself, it really, you know, whatever. It's just words. So, um, so, so with this, with a, the, so as you step into your true nature and you realize, you know, now you're starting to work more and more with your in world, and you're living, you know, you're you're paying more attention to your dream states and you're paying more attention to your allies that you know and, and this, this sort of thing is happening then when you move out into the outer world and you encounter a tree you're going to probably realize that yeah that tree actually has consciousness and that's alive too and that animal also and gosh that lake is, uh, is actually alive and there's a lot that's living in that lake and my goodness, you know, even this butterfly is really beautiful. So, so you start to, and and then you know, you, I mean, the hidden life of trees right now is such an incredibly popular book, and I think for for good reason, you know. Um, but anyway, so when when you start to enter an animated world, then you're starting to work really a little bit more with the shamanic worldview, where where you where you're where you're starting to consciously dream with the earth now there, there's a there's a practice that i think it's in my book and it's in the first book i believe where you with the kaliach where you you actually crawl on your belly into a cairn um and it's easier to do in britain or ireland because they have these places but we can do it here in caves also and you, you crawl in and usually about october you crawl in and you put your your back up against a stone and you ask to dream with the earth. What is the earth dreaming, and how do I dream with the earth? 
And then, you, you know, if you've been doing your meditation practices, if you really know how to go quiet, if you're really in that process of awakening, you might really see some things and hear some things and maybe feel some a really loving presence or you might smell roses or, you know, something might happen where you're like, oh, oh, my goodness, I'm actually feeling the way that, the, that Gaia dreams. You know, in the, in the Celtic tradition, it would be the, I feel the way the Kaliak dreams. So, um, and then when you come out, then you realize, I'm in a dream with the earth. You know, we're really dreaming together. And if and the earth, left her own devices, is very balanced. And if I can dream with her, I, I actually find my own balance. So don't ever let anybody cut you off from your roots, your ancestry, your... You know, don't don't let anyone cut you away from nature or tell you your body's bad or anything like this, because that's that's the way to disempower. And the way to empower is is to feel the body, feel what the body is saying. You know, what is my body saying now? And and like you said, the the I mean, I know with my own kids, they're they're very clear about that. My body says this, mom. <laughs> this is what I'm doing. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's all fun. It's it's incredible fun. If yeah. You know, yeah. you know when we uh, stop living on our making, um, for us it's writing, and and I've gone through it myself too, where I kind of didn't see it being as productive as I would have liked to see it, and maybe a mild rebellion against writing, and just stop doing it altogether for a while. But then I realized that wait a second here, this is my gift, this is my passion. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And when I got away from doing it, I got very depressed. And all yeah, I know, to really it, come out of that was to start doing it again. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If you're put on this planet to be a writer and you mm-hmm. don't do it, you'll start to shrivel up because you, you're yeah. not completing your life purpose and mission. And no. I had a period of time, too, when I didn't write. And I also had the same sort of thing. It was like, why am I here? You know, I just, and, but I started going on these quests so it's, and, then, and then I couldn't help it. You know, I started writing again and I was like, oh, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm not, I was dying because I wasn't following my passion. I wasn't following my thread and who cares if it's weird? You know, it's what I'm here to do. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm a mystic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it'll, so. it'll seem unrealistic to a lot of people. And, and the, the odd thing about my experience was it took place so far after I recognized, um, let me put it this way, I had a center, creative cultural center we call it. It was a spiritual center, and we had groups of people that would come a couple of times a week to do uh, different groups with me and an associate, and we had other facilitators uh, there as well uh, involved in different types of things. But uh, in, I think it was my Thursday night law of attraction group, no, metaphysics group, there was a a woman who... uh, was very unhappy and, and, and she uh, couldn't figure out why. And she was trying to put all the different exercises that we were talking about into effect and stuff. And, you know, sometimes you just have that epiphany. And I had an epiphany. I said to her, well, what was the last time you were happy? And what were you doing when you were happy? Oh, mm. with that fucking such. And I used to paint and this and that. I said, I'll tell you what, why don't you go back to painting? The week mm-hmm. after, it was, the, the next time we met, which was probably about two weeks after, he says, oh, my God, I started painting. I'm so happy now. I have so much joy. And she, it, so that's exactly what she did. She kind of stopped doing that for whatever reason. Maybe somebody told her it was a waste of time. Maybe she began to feel it was a waste of time. 
you know, going back to what well, we were you know, talking the, about, about the, right? you know, material gains through different things. But the goal here is really happiness. It doesn't have to come through money. It can come through living your passion. And that's what happened. She did the same thing that I did a decade later. <laughs> after teaching her. Well, it's true. You know, I, I remember when I was telling my parents I'm on earth to be a mystic poet, and they were like, uh, mm-hmm. how are you going to make money doing that? And I said, I don't I know. know, but I will. I'll figure it yeah. out, you know. And it's, and the thing is, it's, it's fun. as long as I've written, the red carpet has rolled out in front of me. <clears throat> and the times that I've gone, oh, I'm not making enough money. This is crazy. I'm going to try to do something else. I land flat on my face, and then I'm like, well, never mind. I'm picking the pen up again because <laughs> this is uh-huh. where the bliss is. And I, it's not that everybody's a writer either. Like you said, people are painters. Or, but I think what's really important is for each person to find their creative expression. Maybe it's dancing. Maybe uh-huh. it's singing. Maybe it's wood making. Maybe it's who knows. Maybe it's being a podcast. You know, have a radio show. Who, whatever. As long uh-huh. as you're as you're tapped in, I always say be be sixty percent in your in world and and forty percent out. You know, because if you have a big uh-huh. in world, you can you, there's a lot that you can you can produce. And um, and it's really fun and and you know hey it's quirky but Dr. Seuss wasn't exactly ordinary you know there's some yeah. <laughs> there's some real genius that can come from these places Tolkien was a little out there too uh, you know and we still have Lord of the Rings so um, you know dare to dream it's very very important and you know it's, we just when we try to get it all right when we try to be perfect that's when we dry yeah, up that's the problem <laughs> and and I used to do a workshop called the out of you workshop. And one of the first things I used to tell people is don't get caught up in all the spelling and the grammar. When you have the thought or you're ready to tell the story, tell it. You could always go back into it later. And I kind of ironed out, you know, different steps of uh, creating, uh, uh, writing a book. And people would just come out with such beautiful stuff. And, and sometimes it was, would need a lot of tweaking, but sometimes it would need very little tweaking, but their thought was there, and their story was valuable. Yes. Everyone's story is valuable. It's very important. And everyone, you know, every day people tell stories. They'll tell stories about things that happened to them, they'll, you know, in the past, or t- what happened today, or what's going to happen in the future. We all, we're storytellers. That's what we are. And, but, we, but we're also authors of them, so we can change them. Mm-hmm. We can edit them. One of the most brilliant things that I, that I learned with writing for, for the writers who are listening um, is that after I went, I went to Columbia University to the master's program and I was with these fantastic writers, Joseph Brodskelly's Pulitzer Prize winning writer, Susan Sontag and all these people and um, was presenting my work and there was a lot of feedback and a lot of competition and it's Ivy League. And it was, by yeah. the time I came out I could hardly eke out four sentences. You know, that was so critical. And and then I started working as an editor in literary magazines. I became more critical. And then I met, you know, PhD in in London, which is not easy to do. So the writing kind of stopped. And somebody said to me one day, Uh um, why don't you edit with a red pen? And, the, and write with color pens and make it a completely different exercise. So you, you create, you create, you create, you write, you write, and you write, and a week later go back and look at it. And I started doing it, and, and um, it's been one of the most helpful things because I do think you need to be a good editor to make a really, really great piece of literature. 
but mm-hmm. you cannot create and edit at the same time. It's like trying to run your run a no. race and tie your shoelaces at the same time. You mm-hmm. can't do it. Tie your shoelaces no. first, run your race, you know, and then check your shoelaces again, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, your, so that, your technical yeah. is in conflict with your creative <laughs> in that situation. Right. And I think one thing like that, about- too. It's funny you said the thing about college and, and writing, and after you were done, you couldn't complete two sentences uh, on your own, because the same thing happened to me And with drawing. I used to love to draw. I could stay up all night drawing. I wouldn't even know what time it was. It'd be 5 o'clock in the morning. I was like, oh, my God, I've been up all night drawing. Um, but when I went to school for it, I really stopped drawing. I couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. It didn't become enjoyable. I know. I my my daughter went to art college too, and she says, hey, "Come and pick me up." There's no there's no no spirituality here. There's nothing for me to tap into. There's no life. Yeah. And um, so so, but it's it's also our job. I I believe to, you know to go out, take her shoes off, be okay mm-hmm. to be. It's okay. I mean, they say you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're a child, right? Or something like this. So and yeah. it's and it's very true, you know. In order to enter the dream world, we can't be frightened of it, you know. It's like, oh, what, are mm-hmm. you crazy? Who cares? Who cares? Because what you're doing is you're you're entering this world that's feeding you. You're getting you're getting nourishment from your dreams, and then if you consciously mm-hmm. dream, you're getting nourishment from that. And if they're if you're using that dream world for your writing, for your spiritual awakening, for your drawing then you're going to be well-fed, and you're going to be powerful, actually, also, you know, because you're juicy, you know, and, and, and nah, the money always comes. It always comes if you do what you love, somehow, <laughs> sometimes at the last minute, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it shows up, yeah. The, but I, I think really the, our first focus, you know, if, if we focus on money first, that's when we really, that's really where we go wrong, you know, we go off track. It can't be it can't be the predominant focus. It needs to be there, but not number one. Number one is really our connection to the divine, our, and the way that we create with the divine, because everything is created from that place. So speaking of art, you have some powerful illustrations in your books as well. Yes, I do. And um, and I wish they were mine, but I can't say that. I have a wonderful story, actually. This. They're, the illustrations are done by a woman named Belle Crow Ducray, and I have written a lot of children's books, and she's the illustrator for the children's books. I've got a new one getting ready to come out about a dragon. Um, but anyway, so what happened happened is one day she she was an interior designer, and I come into my daughter's bedroom. She's working on my daughter's room, and she's sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And, and I said, uh, Belle, did somebody die? What's going on? And she goes, I pulled your children's books out, and they're so beautiful. I want to illustrate them. So that's how it began. And she illustrated um, Sparkle and the Gift, which won a bunch of literary awards, did well. Then she did A Story of Becoming, which won 18 literary, 18, wow. yeah, it was 18 literary awards, and it had 250,000 downloads. <laughs> and, and so that really set our, my career off and hers. You know, she's, she's an amazing illustrator. So we've done seven books together, uh, to eight soon. And uh, she, she's really a phenomena to work with. Cause it, <laughs> we had these little, my kids had drawn like little stick figures to go with the characters and so forth. But she, 
fleshed them out and, and, and brought them to life in a way that I, I think was really quite extraordinary. Yeah, I have two children's books as well. One's Maple Tree and the other one is Fishing with Tiano. Um, and both of them are in great need of an illustrator as well. Oh. Uh, fishing, yeah, same. Well, oh, contact Bell. <laughs> you never know. Check out um, a story of becoming. It's actually because you you said maple tree. A story of yeah. becoming is actually the journey of an apple tree, told from this perspective oh, okay. of the apple tree, and it's about miracles. Actually, that that book. I think that's why it's done mm-hmm. so well. It's it's really full of hope. Um, all these things happen to the tree, and and mm-hmm. and every time she comes back stronger and more miraculous than before. You know, so. Um, it's been a great adventure with her too, and also to see to see how how Belle has grown over the years too. Because when we first started, um, the first one she did was Sparkle and the Gift, which is really adorable, and it's it's a fairy tale, and 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 the and the illustrations are very colorful. And um, but but the one we just finished, um, which is called Eva and the Rainbow Dragon, it, it's very detailed, and you can re- really see the fairies, and there's quite a fantastic scene with. Uh, Eva down with the with the dragon breathing fire and and so um, her her skill set has really grown uh, in this process also it's fun, it's fun to collaborate yeah if you can yeah, find someone so, who who can dream with you you know <laughs> yeah so maple tree is a is a story of that's uh, it has a moral to it about appreciating the things that you have now because once they're gone then you'll say wow you know now I really understand how important that maple tree was to me. And Fishing with Tayano is about a journey in spirituality and preparation to become the chief of the tribe. So that's an interesting story, too. So that would be really great to have fantastic illustrations. I learned they sound, both of those books sound really amazing. I think there's there's something to children's stories that they're very, very Mm -hmm. important. And it's, you know, in our children one of the first things our children encounter and they read and they they remember the stories i mean my my kids could recite these the stories that i've written back to me you know they know all the details and then some of their other very favorite books like the giving tree you know that's another one um or the velveteen rabbit right but what i didn't know when i was when i first started working on children's books um you know was the industry standard like i didn't know that they all had to be 32 pages and under 1000 words and and so they're really, they're really like writing a poem, uh, you know. When, when I when, when we started working with the text for Rainbow Dragon, I had I had uh, oh gosh four thousand words, and I'm like oh gosh it might have been five thousand. So I have to yeah, have some to, to do. <laughs> right, so I'm like okay, I've got to get my editor out now. Where's the red pen? Um, so so you know I loved the story and Belle loved the story and she did the illustrations. And then we did the editing, which was which was actually very challenging, but I think it came out as I, I we'll see you know we'll see how people respond to it. But I think it came out as a powerful book, but it's it's like taking a short story and making a haiku. Um, but I think the the message can can be made more powerful, you know, when, when you do this exercise. I mean, even if you're a novelist, to go to go and back and do a children's book is a brilliant exercise. Uh, and then read it to the children, because the children will tell you straight away, that was the best story ever. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to read your book sometime. All right. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to uh, 
share anything with the listeners before we close out the show? Do you offer any private sessions, consultations, or workshops? I do. um, If you go to my website is uh, AnnKateSullivan.com, and my first name is A-Y-N. And if you look up A-Y-N, you'll probably find me. I'm all over the place. So (laughs) So, A-Y-N-C-A-T-E-S. S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N, and Kate Sullivan. And you, so if you go onto my website, you can find it, sign up for my newsletter. And if you, if you sign up for my newsletter, I'm just getting ready for my quest for 2020. So I take some a, you know, very selective group on quests, people who are awakening and are ready for this sort of experience. Um, I do a little bit of coaching, and um, I work with authors um, who, uh, who write spiritual books. I also own a publishing company, so um, oh, so I've okay. had a lot of fun with with the, my emerging authors. There, there are four that are getting ready to come out, and they've they've just they're doing great work. It's fun to work as a team. I'm very selective, though. You know, people contact me. I you know, usually say no, but it's but I yeah. do love the 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 collaborative effort. I love collaboration. And... It's my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really good. Sometimes I can steer people in the right direction, even if I'm not the right fit, or maybe I'm the right fit. You never know. But so yeah, I do that, and I and I do help. You know, so coach writers that are coming along. I'm not quite so selective about that. So. Um, but the most important thing I think, you know, if you're listening today is create, you know, just be, be the wondrous child, ask questions, ask questions, dream with the earth, know that we can turn this whole thing around. We just have to be able to, to create, to, to dance together, to hold hands and, um, just have a beautiful day. All right. Sounds great. Thanks for joining us today. Anne Kate Sullivan, author of Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales and Legends of the Grail, Stories of Celtic Goddesses. Uh, as always, you can learn about Anne Kate Sullivan and all of our guests, past, present, and future, at beingwithronash.com. That's beingwithronash.com. And we'll see you all on the radio real soon. Be peace, everyone, because peace becomes you. BTRN's Natural Awakenings Radio explores the various modalities associated with natural health, healing, self-help, and spirituality. Our guests and hosts are the tops in their fields and serve a higher purpose in all they do. 
Call in live for free psychic readings and intuitive counseling. Connect with Source Energy and expand your consciousness. Learn about partnership opportunities at mybtrn.com or by phoning 347-537-GIFT. We are the Being Television Radio Network.